0: Hello and welcome to the 7th episode of Pontificating Across the Pond. In this episode, Som and I talk about the newly minted elephant in the room, Kashmir. We've already spoken about Kashmir in three of our previous six episodes. How Kashmir in the Shah era would be different was something we spoke of a few months ago. And now, with the abrogation of Article 370, it's all the more important that we talk about it. Without further ado, here is the 7th episode.
1: So on the fifth of August today, we uh, saw one of those historic moments out of Lok Sabha. Um, we were talking about uh, the same day uh, as to how, since independence, have literally been few of those moments uh, that we would literally have to think back to what we were doing uh, when it happened. Uh, This was clearly uh, uh, one of those moments. And uh, um, I I just wanted to uh, begin with you with some uh, kind of context uh, on the repeal of uh, Article 370. We will get into questions and everything, but I thought it would be a great place to just start uh, with some context into uh, what happened.
0: Uh, The one thing that our listeners need to know in terms of context, and almost everyone does know, was the fact that uh, more than 560 princely states acceded to India without the need for having any special constitutional provisions. And purely in terms of uh, whether India held the popular will of the people of Kashmir, whether the people of the entire state of Jammu and Kashmir wanted to join India or not, was manifest in the fact that they had chosen Sheikh Abdullah as their leader. He was known to be a big supporter of Nehru and India. And the idea of India, which was an India for everyone, irrespective of caste, creed and religion. So he was very close to Nehru, both ideologically and personally. And the people who made him their leader, they knew what he stood for. It's a bit like today when people come out and say that uh, revoking Article 370 has... uh, come out of the blue well the bjp and all their predecessors have put it on their manifesto for more than four decades when the cia uh, missed india conducting a nuclear weapons test in 98 all they had to do was look at bjp's manifesto to know that the bjp was bjp had vowed that they will do it so it can't come as a surprise to people when their elected leaders take decisions for them. I think that's why you elect leaders in a democracy. You can't have a referendum for everything. And India politically does not have a history of uh, conducting referenda for any issue. So it was well within the constitution. And Sheikh Abdullah was well within his rights as the leader of all of Jammu and Kashmir. But more importantly, the valley, which has become the bone of contention, that he was their representative and he was going to take them into a political union with India. And there was no need for Article 370, which only came in a few years later in 1954, when the purely personal relationship between Sheikh Abdullah and Jawaharlal Nehru had soured. And militarily, I think there is a bit of a misconception that the Indian army was... uh, you know, firing on all batteries, ready to charge and take uh, control all of Jammu and Kashmir, including now the northern areas of uh, Gilgit and Baltistan. I don't think that was the reality on the ground at the time. The only organized military force north of the present line of control was that, was Gilgit and Baltistan scouts, but Gilgit scouts primarily. And they were being commanded by a young Uh, major in the British army at the time. Uh, His name was Major William Alexander Brown. And he had already declared for Pakistan in a coup. So he had gone against both his military masters and his political masters. And he had declared the region of Gilgit-Baltistan for Pakistan. And in any other army, in any other nation in the world, at any other time, In world history, I think he would have been awarded with a court martial and subsequently a firing squad. But given that this was the wild west of partition, junior officers in the rank of a major were in a position to be able to chart the course of history just because they were British and just because they were white. So I think we have to shed our uh, historical lament that we lost, somehow lost gilgit baltistan because if Gilgit Baltistan was a part of the state of Jammu and Kashmir, then the Muslims would be in an even vaster uh, vast majority than they are now. So as things uh, stood, as at the end of uh, secession of hostilities in 1948, all of present day Jammu and Kashmir, including Ladakh, was supposed to be uh, an inalienable part of India with the same laws applicable in Jammu and Kashmir as anywhere else in India.
1: Right. And then keeping this entire context in mind, um, we, you always, I mean, already been reading some of the reactions out here uh, in the press, but I think what has been extremely shocking for a lot of us, and maybe um, even a really little comforting for some people uh, strangely has been the reaction of the foreign press. So you've been reading some of this, you've been privy to some of it. Uh, you must be hearing reactions on the streets out there uh, in the UK. Um, what have you been reading, and like, how grossly are things being misreported? Or more importantly, uh, is is this really the line uh, that you know the international press should be taking on this? Uh,
0: I think three to five years ago, when I was a lot more naive, I think I uh, would have just let it pass. I would have said it's just a difference of opinion. But I think there is a concerted effort in the Western press to push through the agenda that the Kashmiri, average Kashmiri, is in danger. They go to the extent that they do not even, they categorically exclude the names Jammu and Ladakh when they report on Kashmir. I, for one, do not think the Kashmiri is so special. I don't think Kashmir, being Kashmiri is an ethnicity in itself. I think it's not. It is just as much a part of the subcontinent as any other part. As Madhya Pradesh, as Balochistan, as Sindh, as Uttar Pradesh, as Tamil Nadu. I don't think the Kashmiri is special in this regard, but I think it's the it's to the great credit I think of Pakistan and most importantly their diaspora around the world that they have pushed through this agenda so successfully that no western major Western publication turns around and even questions. What is the state of Jammu and Kashmir? And I don't even want them to or wish them to talk about the Kashmiri Pandit exodus and genocide of 1989 and 1990. Even if you skip that, which in itself is an egregious error, and I think it's, uh, you know, it's concerted and it's deliberate on their part. They misrepresent the history of Jammu and Kashmir. They misrepresent the fact that Ladakh is a part of this erstwhile kingdom. They misrepresent the fact that Jammu is a part of the erstwhile kingdom of Jammu and Kashmir. So there's a concerted effort to talk only of the Kashmiri cause. Whereas the state is much bigger than just the Kashmiri cause. And the state is much bigger than honestly just the valley. Uh, The valley is not representative of the entire state. And in fact, in terms of pure geography the Valley of Kashmir would be the smallest geographical entity in the state of Jammu and Kashmir. So I don't think we should be looking to the Western press to guide us or enlighten us in any way, shape or form. But and I think the Indian diplomats and the Indian foreign ministry, I think, should take this up as a challenge. The fact that the Kashmir Cause India's Kashmir cause has been so unjustly represented in the Western world for more than seventy years now. So, partly I think it is the failure of our uh, foreign office, our bureaucracy, our IFS officers, and our politicians that they haven't been sufficiently able to shine a spotlight on the fact that the Ladakhi is just as much a Jammu and Kashmiri as the average. Muslim inhabitant of Srinagar is. So I think that is a distinction that the Western press deliberately does not make. And I think it's for this very reason that my, the regard that I used to hold some of these publications in, uh, a lot of their views might have been very different from my own, but I still read it, A, to understand where they were coming from and being a conservative myself i would read them to understand what a liberal interpretation of uh, either world events or historical events might be but i think deliberately misrepresenting historical fact and then stretching it out to fiction i think my regard for western press just uh, fell through the trapdoor i don't have any left
1: yeah and there was some really uh, there was some really strange reporting on uh... Even quotes by Imran Khan, right? And I, I, I would expect um, you know uh, certain media outlets that only are seen on, say, a YouTube channel uh, or by bloggers who believe that they are journalists uh, reporting such news. But um, I mean, we we were talking about uh, Imran Khan labeling uh, the you know entire Kashmir issue as something that would uh, uh, you know end up in a genocide at some point in time. Uh, this kind of uh, grandstanding by Uh, you know, the Prime Minister of another country and then being reported uh, by the Western press. And I've not seen anyone else really report it. Uh, That really strikes me as strange. You know, I mean, it's bizarre to see such kind of reporting.
0: Yeah, and I think that ultimately shows that this is not objective reporting. Uh, You know, there might be Pakistani press which might want to write on these things. But I don't think, say, a British publication should actually lead with the headline of quote-unquote... A Pakistani Prime Minister fearing ethnic cleansing or a genocide in Indian Kashmir. First, that's manifestly untrue. And B, it goes to show that especially uh, here in the UK, uh, the fact that out of say the 1.2 million uh, Britishers of Pakistani descent, about 1 million of them are Kashmiri. Uh, you know, from the other side of the border, and most of them had emigrated when the Mangla Dam was built. So, an overwhelming majority of the one million are also Mirpuri's, uh, Mirpuri Kashmiris. So, their agenda is very clear, and the fact that a publication like, say, a Guardian or a Telegraph could lead with this, could actually put that on the headline. I, I hope people especially, you know, the objective Western observer or the average Western democratic citizen, they look past some of this because they've been honestly fed lies for so many decades. And I, for one, don't understand what they have gotten out of this great love for Pakistan. In my eyes... uh, Pakistan, A, is a rogue nuclear state. I don't hold any pretensions that, say, India led their uh, march to nuclear weapons status very uh, overtly and with the full support of the Western press. No, I think both India and Pakistan took their own uh, roots, covert routes, to acquiring nuclear weapons status. But the fact that the father of the nuclear weapons program, uh, A.Q. Khan, was... Came, he came out and he confessed to the fact that he was the one person leaking all these nuclear secrets all around the world. If the world is unsafe today, if, say, North Korea has uh, nuclear weapons technology, Iran has it, Libya has it, it is because of this one person in Pakistan that they have it. In Their duplicitous behavior in Afghanistan is there for all to see. The fact that Osama bin Laden was found in Abbottabad, is there for all to see. And yet the press turns around and somehow supports a nation state, which has never been democratic, where the military has ruled them in maybe four stints across 70 years. So I don't understand this Western love for Pakistan and the Western hate for India. I would only just put it down to the fact that it's fundamentally religious, that It's based on a religion that the West does not understand coming from Dharmic traditions and more or less an Abrahamic religion is more or less easy to follow for the Western world. But I think uh, both my regard and the fact that I even followed some of these Western publications to help inform my opinion, I think that has been proven to be uh, an unsuccessful, uh, unsuccessful, you know, sort of excursion. And uh, the Western press should be ashamed of how they've reported on this issue.
1: Yeah, and then, and I actually believe, uh, I mean that that's a pretty interesting uh, uh, insight, uh, right? I mean that uh, as 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 our identity kind of lies uh, in our uh, religion, and that's something that the Western press haven't been able to accept. Uh, I also feel that just our leanings over the years, I mean, from Nehru's time uh, onwards uh, towards Russia, uh, for some reason, even till this day, like, we have one of the strongest defense ties with them. That just has never sat well with. Uh, Uh, you know, the Western press. And while for some reason, Western governance has been able to somehow make that, you know, difference uh, and to be able to understand that difference and to be able to always uh, message uh, Pakistan as an ally that they need and not an ally that they want uh, has seemed to be much more clearer with, uh, you know, governments in the West versus the media. Um, Talking about our religious identity, I mean, I, I also wanted to talk about Uh, you know, just the next big point, right, after how the Western media has been reporting uh, Kashmir um, has been uh, uh, local Kashmiris itself, and I'm not talking about uh, the Kashmiris uh, in the state uh, of Jammu and Kashmir, because we uh, obviously haven't been hearing as much from them, Uh, but um, really from Kashmiris in the rest of the country, right, and a lot of uh, uh, you know, media has been reporting what they've been having to say, Uh, and it's this constant... Uh, submission from them that their identity has been robbed uh, and i and I somehow find that you know if if I was a Kashmiri uh, and again like you mentioned i i don't feel it's an ethnicity or a sense of identity uh because i I don't go around uh talking about being a Kannadiga. Uh but even if I were to in context, I feel that it would feel fairly hurtful to uh associate with an identity that uh, you know, basically encompasses a history of uh, having a constitution and a set of laws completely different from the rest of the country, uh, priding itself on uh, having a set of laws that do not uh, provide any uh, relief for uh, minorities. Uh, you know, there, there are accounts of uh, Punjabi Dalits who moved to uh, Kashmir in the 50s uh, and were given jobs as uh, sweepers. Uh, and uh, because there was no provision to be uh, titled as scheduled castes uh, in the state of Jammu and Kashmir, uh, they have remained sweepers and so have the families uh, since then. Um, this is a state that uh, they say today has a 97% uh, Muslim population, but that is because of no provision and no protection for minorities, uh, which after the uh, so-called uh, exodus of the uh, uh, Kashmiri pundits uh, in the early 90s, Uh, most of the communities feel unsafe out there. Um, You know, uh, my dad, when uh, he was serving in the army in the early 90s, uh, he was posted in Ladakh. uh, And uh, he recounts conversations of, you know, local Ladakhis feeling displaced in their own uh, state. And this wasn't really coming from the perspective of the Indian army being there because the Indian army wasn't considered an occupying force. It was really considered a, a uh, force that was helping them develop in whatever little way they could, uh, and uh, to to kind of denounce uh, minorities in your own constitution, um, and uh, uh, to to have had this you know checkered history of being supported, funded, and you know over a period of time radicalized uh, by uh, another government. Now whether we consider them an enemy government or not, but. It is at the end of the day uh, another state uh, for really uh, reasons that uh, only that state understands. And you have constantly been a part of this radicalization. Um, I, I feel that this identity as such uh, doesn't need any uh, you know, celebration. And I feel very strongly against you know, young Kashmiri students who have chosen to leave their state and study in the rest of the country uh, to somehow now suddenly wake up and say that that is what has been taken away from us. Uh, we are not now. We are not any. We have become second-class citizens. While in reality, uh, they've they've become citizens of this country. I mean, if they've become second-class citizens, then all of us in India have been living as second-class citizens all these years. And I find that uh, you know allegation fairly uh, disturbing. So, what is this? I mean, I, you know, they, I'm kind of at a loss to really understand. You know, this Kashmiri identity that everyone is. Uh, bandering around and saying that it has been lost overnight. Again. W- what was this in the last 72 years that the separatist leaders, who not once went out on the streets against BJP's claims to remove 370, uh, all these years, uh, not once in before the uh, you know manifesto for this elections all the 2014 elections were released, came out and said that we are not okay with this. Uh, the PDP uh, was in a coalition with. Uh, the bjp uh, during uh, its, its stint uh, after 2014 at no point did they come out and say that uh, mentioning the abrogation of 370 is against our values and principles and our identity so i do not i just genuinely don't understand this how are young people educated kashmiris uh, in favor or you know protecting their so called identity when it is so clearly against the very essence by which Every human in this country is living, whether we choose to agree with it day to day or not. But it is against every essence, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. And I, for one, like you said, I have A, to begin with, zero sympathy for... Of course, I have sympathy for the Kashmiri, say, in Srinagar, who doesn't want to be a part of any of this. But for A, the diaspora, and I include uh, the Mirpuri's and the Pakistani Kashmiris in this the diaspora to think that there is a an identity to threaten to begin with There isn't they were just as much a part of the mainstream as any other state and if say i compare them with the far south of the or the far east of the country they have far closer cultural ties to the heart of the country than these two regions do so to begin with a there should be zero sympathy for the kashmiri identity you might have some sympathy for the way the Indian center and the Indian establishment has gone about fighting the insurgency. But even then, I would lay the blame squarely on the shoulders of their political leaders. They have been so happy to rule Kashmir. They've been so happy to charge money from both Delhi and Islamabad for the privilege of doing so that they've let the average Kashmiri rot. And all they have cared about is literally the average Kashmiri they don't care about, say, the people in the plains of Jammu. They don't care about people in the higher altitude regions of uh, Ladakh and Kargil. And uh, there was this marked ideological shift in 1989. That was the year when Parvez Musharraf wrung concessions from Benazir Bhutto that the army be given the sole responsibility for choosing the date and time and when they would uh, foment these attacks in India. The power was taken away from the politicians of uh, Pakistan, Benazir Bhutto in this case, Nawaz Sharif later on. And this was in the aftermath of 1987, which we spoke about last time when we were talking about Kargil. So they... The politicians in Pakistan, they let go of every responsibility they had towards the average Kashmiri. And the Pakistani military obviously started their ideological warfare. The reports uh, in uh, India's Joint Intelligence Committee briefings that Pakistan was spending up to $7.5 million in the early 90s a month, $7.5 million a month to foment insurgency in the Kashmir Valley. And Why are we supposed to have... uh, sympathy for uh, the Kashmiri identity, for the Kashmiri cause, when A, they saw fit not to let the right to education come through in the state of Jammu and Kashmir, the ban on child marriage, political reservation for minority and backward classes, gender agnostic inheritance laws, minimum wage legislation, none of them are applicable in JNK due to Article 370, to the extent that India's criminal code, IPC, is not applicable in Kashmir. They follow something called the Rambir Penal Code, which was formulated in 1932 and named after the Dogra ruler at the time. So, A, my question is, given we also spoke about the Western press, how in good conscience can every single major Western publication neglect to mention this? I would even let that pass and look at it say, as an oversight, which I now know is not true, it is a deliberate uh, deliberate effort to not portray. It. How can, say, the Indian media also, uh, some of the Indian media forget to talk about these things? And a, as an average citizen of the country, why should I celebrate Kashmiri exceptionalism when its people are poor, radicalized, secessionist, and they're stuck in the 19th century Shouldn't this very liberal press take up these causes? Shouldn't they be fighting for these causes? And they turn around and tell me that I'm supposed to hold uh, sympathy bowl out for them because their identity is threatened. I'm really sorry. When Telugu uh, aspirations, when Tamil aspirations, Kannadiga aspirations, Gujarati aspirations, Mizo-Naga aspirations can find utterance in this republic, why should the average Kashmiri uh, cause not fi- find utterance in this republic because I think ultimately it comes down to the fact that they fight this battle on the plank of religion and the biggest failure of the establishment the political establishment in Jammu and Kashmir has been the fact that they have failed to politicize Islam in amidst the secular republican confines of India and that is their biggest grudge But I'm very sorry. It is something that A, a secular republic cannot allow to pass and B, that people's beliefs should find utterance in the causes that their parliamentarians take up, that their legislators choose to take up. And they haven't taken up any of these causes till now. They haven't taken up the cause of integrating Kashmir with the rest of the country. They haven't taken up the cause of actually modernizing the average Kashmiri. So I don't think, I think we should put out the embers of solidarity that we feel for this average Kashmiri, I'm sure we'll talk about the historical background again going forward. But as for now and how things stand, I don't think, A, there is a Kashmiri identity beyond religion. So it is essentially the pan-Islamic identity that they hope to appeal to. But B, that cannot be allowed to pass in the secular republican confines of the constitution that we have. And it is this these very confines now that the average Kashmiri has been brought under. He should be celebrating it as long as he doesn't look at this issue through a religious prism. And if he does, then that there is no place for that in the Republic.
1: Yeah. And I, and I feel that another huge part of, you know, this uh, entire conversation uh, around identity uh, is, uh, you know, non-Kashmiris in the country who are standing up uh, for uh, Kashmiris, or at least that's what they feel they're doing uh, by clearly neglecting a lot of the uh, uh, obvious, uh, you know, s- logic in what has happened. Um, I, I think uh, one large uh, piece that uh, a lot of them have forgotten is, uh, you know, there's this, there's this constant uh, assertion that uh, what happened in Kashmir can happen anywhere in the country. And, you know, when I hear that from normal people on the road, uh, I, I don't really back my eyelids, but there are a huge number of fairly well-educated uh, liberals out there uh, who have been repeatedly making this claim. And I feel that this further weakens the entire conversation that can be had on this entire matter, right? Like these are the people who are clearly aware uh, of, um, you know, some of the reasons uh, surrounding the um, institution of uh, Article 370, uh, the reasons for its repeal, uh, the reasons uh, culturally that uh, have led to uh, this movement. But when they consistently assert that something like this can... Uh, happen in Karnataka tomorrow or something like this can happen in Maharashtra. I mean, I find it really strange that some of these people who are uh, some of the greatest thinkers on on history, on, on just, you know, anthropology in this country uh, are incapable of understanding uh, what is not even a subtle, but a very large difference between anything else happening in the rest of the country. Uh, and uh, Kashmir, I mean, it's, it's not the whim and fancy of Ah, uh, BJP that has uh, led to this decision. It was a clearly well-defined uh, uh, part of their manifesto. Their manifesto does not say that uh, if there is uh, communal trouble in Maharashtra, or Gujarat, uh, or uh, Karnataka tomorrow, uh, we shall convert one part of the state into a union territory uh, and bring it under our control. I mean, I find that preposterous. That those are the discussions that are, we are having. It's it's literally you know like arguing with a child where you know you tell the child that uh this is not right and the child brings up something from the day before and when you talk about that they bring up uh something from another day and it i I've, you know in if this was stand-up comedy it would have been really funny but the problem is that this is becoming the discourse of uh, you know individuals uh, on the streets and uh that's really shocking and you know then let's let's just kind of broad base this entire conversation right like let's just take it out of india and uh, another thing that the Western press have been consistently reporting is somehow comparing what's happened in Kashmir uh, with, uh, you know, what's what's happened in uh, uh, China with the Muslims uh, and uh, with uh, Hong Kong and China yet again, uh, Israel and Palestine. Are these, I mean, are these sensible parallels? Is, is, is there any worth uh, in uh, kind of going down this, these roads? Uh, The Western press. And of course,
0: I mean, all of us as humans, we want to find these common threads and we want to string together these uh, sorts of conflicts which happen around the world and see through the same prism of one large state trying to dominate a smaller state or one large lobby which emanates out of... uh, much larger country than uh, the country that they purport to fight for in this case obviously israel and the large jewish diaspora and the lobby in washington uh, they Of course, everyone wants to see it through a common prism. And I'm sure even we are guilty of uh, that fact. We can understand the nuances of uh, this particular issue in Kashmir much better, I think, than the Western press, which deliberately wants to omit facts. But I think even on some very basic fundamentals, this is manifestly wrong. Like I said earlier, A, the average Kashmiri chose a leader who chose India. So the will of the people was honoured. The will of the people was that they have Sheikh Abdullah as their leader. And his will, which he had already stated, was that he sees the future of Jammu and Kashmir as a union with India. And in this case, the Hindu Dogra, ruler of Kashmir, actually didn't want that. He wanted to remain independent. So that plank is debunked, that there is no popular mandate. There was a popular mandate. You can't turn around after a couple of generations and say that now our mandate has changed and we want out just because we're getting money across from money from across the border, and somehow only in 1989, 42 years after independence, our Kashmiri identity has arisen and now it's being threatened. That's manifestly untrue and that's false. And B also, the fact that the cause of India or the idea of India, obviously, the modern idea of India is not based on religion. It is based on a very sound, secure, secular foundation. But B, also look at it from the fact that the sort of space, the geographical space that India or Indians have always straddled and always inhabited has always had a very strong dharmic influence. This is the land of you know four major religions uh, in the world were born here. And all of them were Dharmic religions and not Abrahamic religions. And unlike unlike the Jewish diaspora, which forever and for some unjust historical reason, in a few cases, they've always been, they've traveled across Europe, they've traveled across the Middle East, and they never established a state of their own. Their state had to be given to them. It had to be carved out of Palestinian land as a promise which was made after World War I and honored after World War II. Whereas India's story is very, very different. How do you think, despite these hundreds of invasions uh, which happened across the Hindu Kush by Islamic invaders, by the English, by the Dutch, by the Portuguese, by the French, how do you think today the Dharmic identity and the Hindu identity in India today survives? Because A, it's very old, and B, the people here fought for it. So again... Confusing it with the Palestinian cause or the uh, Israel-Palestine conflict is again wrong. And perhaps some parallel might exist with how China treats Xinjiang province. But then again, China explicitly stands against religion. It is an atheist state and it is a communist state. Whereas India is not. India is more than happy to accommodate the Kashmiri identity, even though it is based on a religious uh, framework. And for that reason, there's so many millions, hundreds and millions of Muslims in India who live outside Kashmir. Their identity hasn't been threatened. In fact, Hyderabad, which is now India's fourth or fifth largest city, there are close to 2 million Muslims there. About 43 or 45% of the population is Muslim thanks to the legacy of the Nizam of Hyderabad. They live in uh, peace with the rest of the country and their uh, neighbors in Hyderabad, Telangana and Pradesh. So why should we bow down to looking to this, to this issue purely through this prism, that of Western colonial conflict, which has spawned a lot of these things. Even if you again look at Cyprus, it is a legacy of colonialism which hasn't been sorted out. Whereas with respect to Kashmir, it has been sorted. Kashmir also acceded to India, the ruler acceded to India. And you might say that, you know, that wasn't entirely legal or, that didn't represent the will of the people, but, like I said, Sheikh Abdullah represented the will of the people, and he joined India
1: right, and, and this kind of brings us back to our own reporting now, right? I mean uh, I, I, I see how we constantly keep flitting between Western and Indian reporting, and really <laughs> that's, that's where the, you know the, the conversation has been uh, created uh, because um, you know if, if some of this had happened ten, fifteen years ago. Uh, there really would have been just one news report that would have come out in the evening by all the major news channels, which were already two or three, and uh, a couple of editorials the next day, and we would have moved on with our lives. But clearly, uh, considering the reporting is far more uh, wider now with, with social media, with every news channel having its own, you know, social media team and its own uh, YouTube team, which creates content very different from what the television watching audience sees. Um, I think that the need to constantly report news has created the need to just keep creating more news, right? And uh, I feel like some of the reactions that have come out, which should have really been genuine debates happening on this, right? I mean, there is a very clear, um, uh, you know, assertion by the Kashmiri people on the fact that uh, whatever said and done, this wasn't done fairly. Uh, The amount of time being spent on reporting that versus, again, uh, on the assertion that by the Indian government and by supporters of what happened uh, on their entire rationale behind uh, uh, doing it the way that it was done. Uh, instead of these conversations, we are spending time on a BJP MLA who has um, in in some form asserted that uh, now uh, Indian men can marry uh, Kashmiri women. Uh, I, I feel that, you know, when you, when you propagate or when you, uh, as mainstream media and as some of the more Reputed channels constantly take this news out. What you end up doing is you create this echo chamber around, uh, you know, the the public. Where now what you do is you take that statement and throw it out amongst public on the streets. And then you get some more minutes of uh, news, you know, where the public on the streets just say the same old thing, which is what this MLA said was wrong. I mean, one, it's a given it was wrong. Though now there are reports that the way he said it and what he said, was not really asserting that and it really genuinely doesn't matter because that's not the debate that we should be having barely a week after one of the most historic um you know uh, moments that have come out of uh, indian polity uh this was not the conversations we were having after uh, the the nuclear tests uh, these are not the conversations we were having after the kargil war these are not the conversations we were have happening after uh uh, you know, what uh, What uh, the P.V. Narsimha Rao government did in the early 90s uh, with the economy. Because uh, there was a more balanced sense to the media. There was no need to fill in minutes of every citizen's day. And I feel that some of the reporting has been uh, really irresponsible. I feel it, it genuinely hasn't been uh, balanced. Uh, I, I saw this one video by the print uh, today where... A journalist is asking people for and against uh, 370 right it's it's apparently a protest march that's happened in delhi and there are these people who are against uh, against article 370 being uh, uh repealed and w- what what i find uh, strange is that at some moment in that video there are a group of so-called nationalists who walk in and about five of them who come and stop these protesters uh, and try and start arguing with them and this print journalist happens to be there in that moment And he starts asking questions to both sides. While this might be completely organic, what clearly happens is that there is this very apparent bias on the journalist's face and in his language and in his demeanor where he's with the protesters who are against the repealing of 370. And how he exhibits that is every time he interviews one of the so-called nationalists, which again is something I don't understand why they had to be painted as nationalists and why they had to have this whole Bharat mata ki jai. Uh, kind of avatar attached to them. But the conversation that he had with them were very pointed questions to them. But the conversation he was having with the people who were against 370 being repealed uh, were uh, leading questions, you know. So it's basically like a lawyer who was playing defense for the article 370, uh, you know, protesters. uh, And then he was acting prosecution against the other. And that's exactly what you don't want from a journalist on the ground talking to the public. You know, those should be questions with answers which are fair on both sides because what he's ended up doing is uh, paint a stronger picture against the so-called nationalists because they managed to find idiots to kind of represent the opposite cause uh, and they found fairly articulate people to represent the uh, you know, repeal of uh, 370. And it's just broken. This this entire reporting is broken because that's how opinion travels in this country. The left liberals or the so-called left of center are watching the print because they are the ones who YouTube pops these uh, videos up to. Uh, and the so-called nationalists are not even watching these videos where they are being showed, uh, shown as idiots. Or people who are in favor of uh, the repeal of 370 are not even being shown these videos. So keeping aside what technology has done to the way we consume news media, what is the... Like what, what should be the Indian media doing? Because this is unprecedented uh, you know, kind of uh, news and just the responsibility of how you deal with it and how you present it should be better thought out, right?
0: Definitely. And like you said, the fact that we've left the days of objecting, reporting far behind, it's very clear for, I think, everyone to see. And I, for one, don't want... To only read press or news or op-eds and editorials, which conform to my opinion. Like I said, I actively would seek out things which I, which I think I don't believe in or different viewpoints. And I would like to do that. But like you said, I think it's become now a very successful meme Uh, that on the right, you always find idiots on the road who represent the right. And you always find a well-educated, bespectacled university professor who represents the left. Of course, it's an unfair fight. Of course, the average person on the road is not going to win that argument for the right or any conservative agenda anywhere in the world. So... The fact that a lot of these debates are framed in this way, I think, is a big problem, like you rightly pointed out. And also moving from, you know, one echo chamber to another, I wanted to discuss the happenings in the both houses of the parliament, because some of the parliamentary discourse, I think, uh, did not get as much attention as it should have. And as much as I support this current government's decision in this regard, and i more or less been a supporter of their muscular foreign policy, of their uh, positioning, of their operations, defensively offensive operations that they've conducted, the slightly freer reign that they've given to the uh, armed forces, have also been a very fierce critic of uh, their economic policies. And I think what has not gotten enough attention, and in fact, this is, I think, one of the places where the uh, media could have jumped on... uh, the ruling party's throat, the government's throat. And they could have held them accountable for some of these things Were the was the discourse in parliament. And one thing which greatly distressed me was the fact that BJP came out as the upholder of Sardar Patel's legacy, of him being the Iron Man of India. And I think in one of our earlier episodes, we spoke about how Amit Shah being a Gujarati himself, sees himself as the second coming of Sardar Patel. And he wants to establish a legacy which, you know, Indians down the years and down the centuries will remember him for. And he always had this air about him that he wanted to do something historic and be remembered by history. But I think what happened in these debates was a very clear polarization and as to who gets to hold on to the legacy, so-called legacy of Sardar Patel and Jawaharlal Nehru. And no one was willing to hold both these issues together, was willing to couple these issues, because the BJP was vociferous in saying that it was Sardar Patel who ensured uh, an Article 370 free accession to India of the state of Hyderabad, of Junagar, and the 560 other princely states. Whereas Nehru alone is responsible for the mess we see with Kashmir today. And I thought that was highly disingenuous of uh, the party to do so because that is manifestly not true. Well after Patel's passing, Nehru continued the focus on geographical nation building. Goa didn't become a part of India during uh, Patel's stint as home minister. And for everyone who says that Nehru did not have a geopolitical understanding of uh, what uh, Kashmir meant and what the territory of India means, It was subsequent uh, governments which ensured that Sikkim became a part of India. And the reason that we have some breathing space around the Siliguri corridor, which at its narrowest is just 20 kilometers wide, and Sikkim, which nestles between Bhutan and Nepal, is a part of India, is not because of uh, Sardar Patel. It is because of Nehru and it is because of some of his... uh, Descendants that Pakistan doesn't exist in its original form of East and West Pakistan. So I thought it was highly disingenuous of BJP supporters, BJP parliamentarians to solely give credit to Sardar Patel for the 370 free accession of all other princely states and hold only Nehru accountable because he was himself a Kashmiri for the fact that uh, there was a 370 inserted. Of course, there were many faults you could find with Nehru's economic policy and even his uh, stance on non-cooperation. But I think that is the place where some of the criticism of the BJP government should have come in. And just a, another quick real history detour. The only referendum which happened in pre-1947 India, the referendum of Junagad happened after the announcement of the independence. The only... Popular mandate or the only referendum which was conducted was in the erstwhile Northwest Frontier Province, in which is in today Pakistan, and it was named the Northwest Frontier Province for the longest time, and it didn't even and the people of uh, this region they and mostly Pathans, mostly Pashtuns, they didn't even have the region named after their ethnicity like is the case with the rest of the provinces of Pakistan. You have Punjab, you have Sindh, you have Balochistan, you have Azad Kashmir, you have Gilgit Baltistan, but you do not have a Pashtunistan. And even when it was renamed, the Northwest Frontier Province was renamed, it was renamed Khyber Pakhtunkhwa to quell any talk of the fact that this was a region primarily inhabited by Pashtuns. And we are very quick to forget the fact that Their tallest leader was a Congress leader. It was Khan Abdul Gaffar Khan, who we know as Frontier Gandhi, or Bacha Khan. He was their leader and he wanted a united India or he wanted NWFP to be a part of India. And if you consider Kashmir, all of Kashmir to be a part of India, then Northwest Frontier Province is contiguous to that. You should hold Sardar Patel accountable for the fact that NWFP is not a part of india and the prevailing opinion at the time was that without NWFP pakistan was just not a viable state they were anyway left in jinnah's own words a moth eaten pakistan and without northwest frontier province it would pakistan of today would look it wouldn't you would not be able to distinguish it and northwest frontier province as we know now has in fact become so important for pakistan it's the sole reason that the west tolerates pakistan NWFP was the place where it was the launchpad of the CIA-ISI-funded Afghan resistance to the Soviets in the 1980s. More recently, America's war on terror. And for, from India's perspective, it has been the training ground where these jihadis were trained and then pushed into... 10,000 of them were pushed into Indian Kashmir in 1989. And the sole reason that region is a part of Pakistan nestled on the fact that they had a referendum in the 1930s against the express wish of the ruling government of the province. It was a Congress government. In fact, Bachar Khan, uh, Frontier Gandhi's own brother, elder brother, was the leader. And Congress, they in fact abstained from voting. They boycotted the vote. And with only a 50% turnout, the NWFP voted to be a part of Pakistan. So you don't see the Indian government, the Indian people questioning the validity of that vote. And there is no other place where there was actually a vote needed. Junagar was overwhelmingly Hindu and wanted to be with India. Again, Kashmir, uh, Hyderabad was overwhelmingly Hindu and wanted to be a part of India. And Kashmir, like I've said a million times till now, they voted for a leader who wanted to be a part of India. So I think even historically... We, have some, we suffer from historical amnesia where we want to attribute all of India's state-building capabilities and uh, accession and integration of these princely states to only one man, whereas it was a two-person job. It was a Nehru-Patel combined. And in fact, this geographical, territorial nation-building continued well after Sajar Patel left office. So I thought that was one one facet of the debate in both houses of parliament that I absolutely disliked. I think we should look at both of them as builders of the nation and the fact that the BJP government expressly failed to do so, I think does say, does hold a mirror unto them and tell them that they shouldn't purely look at Nehru as the enemy of RSS because he was one. There were things we did, which were good and we should did not decouple the legacy of nehru and patel and we should look at it as a coupled single uniting legacy that they left india with
1: yeah and uh, and i feel like the the media was supposed to be you know uh, putting up a mirror against the polity they uh, they they've completely failed uh, on on all those aspects uh, and whether uh, you speak about you know uh, being builders of of the nation uh, while while nehru and and saldar patel with know, the due credit they've received and maybe not received uh, over the years uh, were were at least um, politicians who now in hindsight, we have seen, um, you know, their track record. We've seen what they created and how some of those, uh, right from institutions Nehru created uh, to uh, even states and union territories that both of them uh, created and just to be able to integrate India, they were able to successfully do that pretty much across the country. Uh, I think that is going to be really just kind of now looking forward uh, in in this whole scenario uh, is going to be so critical for this BJP government. Uh, You know, just like Michael Lewis in his amazing book, The Fifth Risk, um, talks about the fifth risk itself, right, which is bad project management. Uh, I mean, he talks about that in context of uh, the Trump government. But I feel like that is something that this BJP government now, all questions, all eyes should move towards how they manage this project. Uh, you know, the last big move that the government did was uh, with demonetization in the previous tenure. Uh, that can clearly be termed as bad project management. What happened, what ensued after that, uh, however hard hitting the move was, however right it felt at that point in time. Uh, there was very little uh, criticism. At the moment, the, uh, you know, the um, Narendra Modi uh passed the entire uh, legislation. I feel that uh, with Kashmir and with article 370, uh, it is some of that goodwill that the government has lost after demonetization uh, that is coming back to hit them, even with press that generally sits on the center on such issues. Uh, And uh, where the government really has to prove its point. And I feel that some moves were already seen. I know it's very nascent, but the fact that Modi wasn't the voice and face of the announcement. And it was Amit Shah. Uh, While a lot of people see it as Amit Shah trying to elevate himself in this entire conversation. I feel this comes from some amount of thinking that has gone in. uh, Because obviously, this wasn't a move that was decided overnight. This wasn't a move as a lot of media and so called Twitter celebrities have uh, spoken about as a move that was made in light of the performance of the economy. Because I that some of them don't understand that something of this scale to mobilize these num- n- number of troops is not something that you can overnight call up a, a general of the northern command and ask him to just move so many troops. It's, it's not really that, that straightforward. Uh, you know, Ajit Doval had been sitting there for over a month. Uh, there was a change in um, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the Secretary, uh, the State Secretary in Kashmir uh, soon after the elections. This was a move that was in the making for a while. Uh, so... While some parts of the execution, much like demonetization in the lead up have been fairly well thought out, at least as far as the government is concerned, while the repercussions are already hitting us, I feel that every move from this moment on uh, basically sets them up for, uh, you know, this risk of bad project management, which is the promise has been made uh, for a state uh, to, to Jammu and Kashmir, much like after demonetization, a promise had been made that corruption will be removed. While within a month, it became about uh, black money and reducing, uh, you know, the amount of money funding through terrorist organizations. And every 30 days, the discourse and the narrative just kept changing. Uh, I really hope that this time around, and I know that equating demonetization with Article 370 would feel fairly preposterous. uh, And I'm glad the Western media does not listen to our podcast because I can only imagine (laughs) uh, the reactions. But but I I generally feel that this is where the BJP government has to prove itself. Uh, it is it obviously is it can weather the storm that is going on right now because the general air of indifference that travels in the stratosphere that Modi and Amit operate in will allow them to kind of survive this phase. Uh, but what happens next is going to be key. And you know what are what are some of your hopes and wishes that we are able to kind of tide over this time all the way from. How are they going to manage uh, Kashmir and its people in the valley, uh, however small that population is, in the aftermath of all restrictions being removed, uh, of the people being allowed to move around completely freely. Uh, how are they going to manage that? Uh, and uh, how are they going to manage some of the promises they seem to have made fairly early uh, in, in this entire uh, uh, journey?
0: I think we will see increasingly higher central government investment flowing into Kashmir now. I think both, the, both leaders, both Modi and Shah, have made promises that they have to keep now. And honestly, no private sector investment is going to take the lead and go into Kashmir. So purely from the monetary fiscal investment angle, I think it is the central government which will have to lead the way. And I think they will. They will set aside, uh, we already spend a lot in Kashmir and I think money will be set aside in subsequent budgets purely for Jammu and Kashmir. But like you said, it's purely project management. The government has to come out in due course and tell the nation, tell the world that these are some of the milestones that we've set. These are the milestones that the Kashmiri people, their legislative assembly will need to hit to attain full statehood again. And be very clear that full statehood, again, will not in any shape, way or form mean another constitution and another flag. I think the talk, they have to redefine the red lines very, very clearly. And I think in due course, if this is the first step towards solving the Kashmir issue, then it couldn't have begun any in a much better way. They've decoupled the issues now with China and Pakistan. Uh, We have now two union territories. So Aksai Chin now becomes a Ladakhi and China only issue. And the broader Jammu and Kashmir now becomes a Pakistan issue. So they've done that. And I think they have to also come out and say that this is the way forward now on how we will deal with Pakistan and China going forward. Because I don't think anyone wants to live in A, a perma conflict And I don't think even Kashmiris and the rest of the nation, I don't think we have any interest in valorizing militants, just like with uh, Naga militants, with Mizo militants. I don't think we, or with the violent Naxals, which uh, in present-day Telangana and uh, old state of Hyderabad have come to be, I don't think the nation has any time or patience to put up with them. So like you said, put out goalposts and set out on that path, And keep updating us as and when you hit them. But what they cannot do is change the goalposts on this. They have to be very clear that these are the milestones. This is the path that we've set out on. And when you meet these uh, targets and when you meet these requirements, you will have uh, your state back. And you will be just another state in the Indian Republic as special as the state
1: next to you. Right. So I think uh, on on that note, and after potentially irking some of our left-leaning friends, uh, or uh, uh, liberal friends, or uh, (laughs) anyone who uh, seems to have not uh, seen this entire move from all the perspectives that we have seen, um, I believe we uh, come to a close on this episode. But uh, uh, clearly, uh, something that we are going to uh, monitor, we are going to kind of follow, Uh, And and I hope that uh, we continue to do it from both the prisms of the Western and the uh, Indian media, because uh, at the end of the day, that's where the uh, narrative is being uh, set. So on that note, uh, thanks to all our audience for listening on. I know there might have been moments where there might have been some violent reactions on uh, everyone's parts on some of the, uh, uh, you know, stands that uh, we have taken. But I I, I genuinely believe that... uh, a discourse which is, um, you know, keeping the context of the the entire uh, history of uh, Jammu and Kashmir and we've, uh, needs to be in place. Uh, we have constantly done that uh, in the last few episodes. Uh, I think over there we've we've kind of nearly mentioned Kashmir in inadvertently in nearly every episode uh, that we have recorded. Uh, so, any notes on the future of uh, of uh, this entire move or Anything that you feel that we want to keep an eye on in the coming weeks uh, out here?
0: I think it's the curve lifting off the curfew, easing off restrictions on of movement on telecommunications. And ultimately, we more or less know what the voice of the valley is going to be. But I think we will all move on. And that includes the Kashmiri. I think as long as we keep the discourse civil, as long as we keep it rooted in fact, And we don't resort to triumphalism. I think, like we always say with Kashmir, this is an issue we will keep revisiting. Uh, So it's Kashmir and the economy which have become our bugbears. And I'm sure we'll keep revisiting them in the episodes to come.